Uh, if you have your Bibles, open with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> if I came to you and said to you, um, I want you to, you to do me a favor and find me a passage of Scripture um, that runs counter to everything we see in our culture today, the text that we're in this morning would be a really good candidate. There, uh, there are not too many churches preaching this text this morning, or texts like it, because it is so clearly countercultural. Uh, we at Poplar Spring are committed to uh, preaching and teaching the entirety of God's Word, all of Scripture. And one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible is that it brings us to places like this. We don't get to pick and choose, and when we come to hard text, to confusing passages or unpopular texts of Scripture, we don't get to just skip over them because we don't want to offend um, those who are here in the body of Christ or those who are out there in the culture that would disagree. And uh, all of God's Word is inspired. That's what Timothy, uh, the book of 1 Timothy, will, will show us. All of it is profitable. And so that means for you and for me that are here this morning, gathered here today, we need to understand what God is saying to us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 in a text where it discusses God-ordained roles for men and women. Now we live in a culture where we see uh, around us in the culture and even increasingly within the church, there's a, a rising uh, sexual immorality, there's skyrocketing divorce, we see a degradation of marriage, biblical marriage a confusion of gender, and, and even in, in, our, in our culture, the, the conversation right now um, regarding homosexuality and same-sex marriage and transgenderism, we look at these trends and we see these trends and we can point to them, but often we miss the heart of the issue. Listen to what John Piper says here in a quote. I think he gets to the heart of it when he says this. He says, confusion over the meaning of manhood and womanhood today is epidemic. He said this a long time ago, not in the current state of the world right now. And the consequence of this epidemic confusion is not free and happy harmony among gender-free persons. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, more emotional distress and suicide that comes with the loss of God-given identity. In other words, when we look around and we see concerning trends, homosexuality, transgenderism, heterosexual immorality, pornography, cohabitation, divorce, these are just symptoms of a, of a much deeper heart issue. That's what John Piper's saying. It's, I would agree with that, and I think the text today will teach us that all of these symptoms that we see in our culture and increasingly in the church are a result of having a misunderstanding or worse, a rejection of Biblical manhood and, and womanhood. God-ordained gender roles are at the core of who we are, who we've been created to be. It's at the core of who God is. And so that makes passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, vital for us and laughable to the world. However, passages like this are essential for us as the people of God and show us the Bible's not out of line. The Bible's not out of date. It's always true and it's always good regardless of what culture says. And so as we come to this text today and it confronts us where we are, maybe frustrates some of you, confuses maybe, causes a response from you, even maybe anger, I challenge you, as I've been challenged with this text this week, to ask, to wrestle with, to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and see whether your views on this topic are more informed by the culture around you or maybe your upbringing, or the way you were raised, or are your views here more informed by the Scriptures, God's Word? And if, if you discover, if you're being honest with yourself and discover that it's, it's being more influenced from culture or voices around us, or you're raising, your upbringing, rather than God's Word, I, I, I beg you to repent and submit to God's Word, His good design this morning. So, let me take a moment and remind you of where Paul's been, what we're doing in the book of 1 Timothy. Paul's writing a letter. This is a letter. And he's writing it to Timothy. He's a young pastor uh, who's serving in Ephesus. Now, in that church in Ephesus, there were several things going on. Rampant paganism outside the church, uh, cult worship. Uh, inside the church, there are false teachers. And so inside and outside of the, the church, there were problems and threats. And so Paul writes, and the reason for writing this letter, and I'm quoting him in 
1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, I'm writing so that you may know, Timothy and church of Ephesus, how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God. So Paul is writing Timothy, the church of Ephesus, and us today, as this is God's word meant for us, to give us the standard, our orders on how we are to behave as God's people, as God's children. Now those orders are going to include instructions for when we're gathered for worship, as we are this morning, and when we're scattered to serve Jesus, as we will be tomorrow and the rest of the week. And so, the rest of chapter 2, we studied the first part of chapter 2 last week, the rest of chapter 2 will break down like this, and here's our, our outline, three major sections in the text this morning. First is, we see a, conv- a convicting charge to the men of the church, that's verse 8. Second, we'll see a careful corrective for the women of the church, verses 9 and 10. And then thirdly, we'll see a clear explanation of the distinct roles of men and women in the church, verses 11 through 15. So let's jump in. The first observation, we see a convicting charge to the men of the church. Hear God's word with me this morning. We'll start in verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, a couple things we have to remember as we approach this text this morning. You have to remember this, that, that first, we, we can't separate this passage from what came before it, what we saw last week, nor can we separate it from what comes after, which we'll see in the weeks to come. Paul's writing a letter, right? And so when Paul's writing, he's not putting chapter numbers and verse numbers. He's, he's spilling his heart before uh, the people of Ephesus and, and Timothy here as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so as he does that, we have to remember what he just said, right? He just couched all of the things that he's going to say today in last week's discussion about God's desire to save all peoples, people from everywhere, all types of peoples, because, that's what he said last week, Christ died for all peoples. Everywhere, all types and kinds of people. So last week, Paul showed us who we should be praying for. He gave us some specific examples of praying for leaders and rulers so that all peoples can be saved as we have peace and can live godly lives and and, and share the gospel freely. So we saw that last week. We saw uh, Paul give us who to pray for and what to pray for. This week, he's going to continue by giving us who we are to be as we pray. It's just a continuation of his thought from last week. And those instructions are going to be specific to men and women. The second thing we had to remember as we come to this text is that it was written in history, right? So that means it's written to a specific group at a specific time dealing with specific issues. Now, we don't know all of what was going on in Ephesus. We don't know the issues they were facing in total. But from Paul's instructions here, we can know a few things for sure. Namely, that in verse 8, there were men who were either, one, not uh, praying at all, right? Not being the spiritual leaders they should have been and praying at all. Or they were praying in the church but living like hypocrites because as soon as they got outside of the church, they were fighting with one another and quarreling with one another. So that's that's one of the problems going on here in Ephesus. The second problem that we see, verse 9 through 12, would show us there were apparently women who were wearing things that were distracting in church. And by doing so, they were disrupting the teaching and leadership and discipleship that was taking place in the church. And so even though there were probably other specific issues in Ephesus, other things going on, we know these at least were the case. So we see that this happens in time, it happens in history, and it's it's being written to a specific group of people. At the same time, in just a few chapters, or just a few verses, we're going to see that that God's word is meant for all people, and it has application for all times. And so our task this morning is to understand what it's saying to them then, so that we can understand how to apply it to us now, all right? We can't separate those two. So let's start by seeing what Paul says. He says he wanted, he desired men to pray in every place, right? A couple things here. This could be a reference to the house church model that they used in Ephesus. We know from the book of Acts that they met in homes in different places. And and so maybe Paul's saying here that wherever you gather across the city of Ephesus, men pray. Pray, men. Or it could mean that in every place, going back to what we saw last week in the text, that God's desire is for the entire world to come to salvation. Paul could be echoing what he said last week, that his desire is that in every, every place, every country, every, every continent, among every people group, he desires that men be praying because men are being saved, right? Either way, though, his concern here is not just that men be praying or where they be praying, but how, how they're praying. And so this morning, we're going to see a few things uh, in his statement here 
And in three ways, in particular men, as we're uh, reading this and understanding this, three ways, men, that we should be convicted as we approach this text. We're going to see them in Paul's statement here in verse uh, 8. So here they are. Number one, men, we should consider our posture before God in worship. When we're lifting hands in prayer or in praise or while singing, we're saying to God with our physical bodies, I agree with what's being said right now. Whether I'm the one praying it or someone else is or it's being sung in a song, it's a physical picture of our humility and our dependence upon God, right? And we, we get this from the time we're, we're small children. You, if you have kids, you, you, you know this. You see this in them. Uh, Ryland is, is, is one and she doesn't talk yet. <laughs> and so she throws her hands up to me, right? And she's saying to me in that morning, I want to be up there with you. <laughs> I, I want to be up near to you, but I can't get there. And so I need you to pick me up. I'm identifying my need that I need you to help get me to you. Now, she doesn't know that that's what she's saying, but that's what she's saying every time she flings her hands up and cries out, right? She's admitting her dependence and her need before God, and that's what our posture looks like before God in worship. So hear me carefully, men, especially, because this is who this is written to. I'm not telling you what it should look like for you to come into the body of Christ, what posture you should assume as we worship through song or through prayer, uh, I don't want to give you some legalistic rule like this is when your hands go up and this is when your hands go out. And that's not the point here. I'm asking you to wrestle with what it communicates. I'm asking you to wrestle with what your posture before the Lord as we're gathered as his body communicates. So often, uh, we're more concerned with what it communicates to everyone around us than what it communicates to the God we're here to worship. All right, Like that thought, every one of us has had it, that goes through our head like, what are people going to think if I raise my hands? Will I be a distraction? Will people think I'm some crazy charismatic person that's about to flip out? Will people think I'm some softy or some sissy? Will, will others observe and notice that I'm doing this and think more of me because I'm supposed to be all holy now? Like, what is, what is our motivation and what's going through our head that would prohibit us from assuming a posture of worship before the Lord? And if those things are going through our head, then we have to really wrestle with who are we worshiping in that moment? Them? Their, their thoughts of, of who we are, or really, if we get down to the heart of it, we're worshiping ourselves because we want to be perceived in a certain way or not perceived in a certain way. And so all I'm asking us, men, is to, to think about your posture before the Lord and wrestle with, who are you doing it for or not doing it for? Second thing it should convict us in, and, and this is the, the, really the heart of the issue, this is where Paul's getting at, it should convict us concerning our purity before God. We know this is what Paul has in mind because what he says here sounds just like what we read in the Psalms. Psalm chapter 24, uh, verse 3 and 4. Uh, the psalmist says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who, who has, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You go to Psalm 26, verse 6. It says, I wash my hands in innocence and I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of all your wondrous deeds. The common theme that we see in the Psalms that we just read and in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we're, we're looking at, verse 8, is the purity before the Lord in worship. The washing of their hands in the Old Testament in, uh, in, 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 in Judaism was a physical picture, something they would physically do to, to, to show or to represent the spiritual cleansing that had happened in their hearts. And so the application for us men is clear. It makes no sense to grip and to hold on to your sin while you approach God in prayer. They don't fit together. They're not to be reconciled. That you would have unconfessed sin or sin that you're clinging on to while you're trying to appear holy in prayer before the Lord. They don't go together. Instead, humbly confess the sin in your life and be cleansed by the mercy of God through Christ. Then pray with purity in your heart before God. So think about your posture before the Lord. Think about your purity before the Lord. And then third, here's the third convicting part of this, this, this verse. It says, pray with peace between you and others. And so as you look back at the verse we just read, verse 8, it says, lifting holy hands. That speaks of our, our posture before the Lord, the, the lifting of hands, but not just any hands, holy hands, right? And that speaks of our heart before the Lord, our purity. Has our life been uh, cleansed? Have we confessed sin? Have we been made right with God? But there's more. He doesn't just stop there. He says, without anger or quarreling. This speaks to our need for reconciliation with one another before coming to God in prayer or in worship. So ask yourself right now, is there anything in my life that's unreconciled with a brother or sister in Christ or somebody in this church family 
Is there anything that's unconfessed? Is there conflict? Is there anger? Is there quarreling? And if so, go and make it right. David Platt said this, and this quote is, is, is so good, and he's, it's convicting. He says this, Peace with God is artificial if there is not peace with others. Do, do we hear that? Peace with God is artificial if there is not peace with others. In other words, your peace with God, the, the appearance that you have peace with God is just that. It's a facade. It's fake if there's not peace with others. And so you may say, man, the, the hurt I feel, though, is so deep. Like the problem that I have with that person is insurmountable. And to that, I would say, think about the context here in Ephesus. Think about who Paul's writing to. He's writing to a church leader and to a church where there is clear false doctrines, clear false gospel being taught by false teachers in the church. You don't think there was fussing and fighting and arguing going on? Yes. And there should have been. In fact, our our firmest rebuke should be for those that are false teachers in the church that would spew a false gospel. And yet Paul says, he instructs here, go and be reconciled. And when you come before the Lord with hands lifted, pure hands lifted before the Lord, let it be without anger and quarreling as you make your prayers unto God. I mean, this aligns with what Jesus commands in Matthew 5, right? Matthew 5, 23. If you're offering a gift at the altar and then you remember that you have something against, uh, some, that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, Le- leave it at the altar and, and, and go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. We have this tendency, men, and, and this is, the, this is the, the context, right? So I'm, I'm looking at the men right now. We have a tendency to rush into gathered worship services, times when we're coming together as the, the family of God here, and skip over our need to honestly confess our sin before God. And it makes no sense to do that. Why? Because a right heart, right attitude is vital, is crucial for prayer and God-honoring worship in the church. So let your hearts be clean before God. Let your hearts be right toward one another. Be at peace with God and with one another before coming into this gathering. This is really something we're all commanded to do. This isn't just for men. Women, we need to do this too. But but Paul specifically here is addressing men. And so men, listen up just a second. If you've tuned out, tune back in. We men lead in this. This is our duty. It starts with you, brother in Christ. It starts with you, men. It starts with you, daddy. It starts with you, husband. You lead in this area in your home. And so as spiritual leaders in your home, don't let it be unheard of or uncommon that your wife or family would hear you repent of sins, right? Like as you gather around a meal at the dinner table, let it not be unheard of or uncommon that you would repent of things that you've fallen short for. Your kids, your wife need to hear you lead in that. Repent to them. Ask them for forgiveness when you've lost your temper or you've gotten angry or you've sinned against them. You're to lead in this. You're to model this for them. That's our call. That's our duty. That's why Paul's addressing men first here in verse 8. Second point, and this is verses 9 and 10. We see a careful corrective for the women of the church. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. It says, Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So, church, uh, we just dealt with the exhortation to the men, and this one's fairly straightforward, so it shouldn't take long, right? Uh, You add these two verses to verse 12, and what you really see in verse 12 is that women should remain quiet, and so what we infer from this is we got a whole lot of sinning women around here that need to repent. I heard you talking this morning. I've seen your braided hair. I've seen your gold and pearls. Don't throw anything yet. Don't throw anything yet. Uh, there is exhortation here for us, church, and for our ladies in particular, because that's the context, but it's not quite that. What we see here is that there were certain women that had, became a, that had become a distraction in the church in Ephesus. We infer this from verse 9, right? And so what do we learn from here? Do we need to place a security team at the front doors, right, that are observing and, and checking ladies for braided hair and gold as they enter into the sanctuary? No. That's not uh, what we're asking for. That's not what Paul's commanding here in Scripture. Um, but we do need to think about this. And we need to think this is one of those places in Scripture where it is vital to understand the context, right? Because if you take a text out of context, it's a, pre- a pretext for a proof text. That's just a big, fat way of saying if you take a verse out of context, you're messing up <laughs> in any way, in any shape, or in any form. And so what do we see? Let me walk you through the, the context here in Ephesus. And as I do... I'm talking about Ephesus, but you'd be thinking about parallels to our culture. So in Ephesus, along with many of the towns that Christianity was born into, 
Uh, the first believers in these towns all across the, 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 the ancient Middle East, uh, these towns were filled with sexual immorality. And uh, in an increasing way, even in their religious practices, there would be cult prostitutes and sexual things would be done in the worship of their false gods. And it was common for women to wear things that brought that attention to themselves, in particularly to seductively try to bring attention to certain parts of themselves so as to make themselves available for those purposes. We won't get into all those details this morning, but you can imagine cult prostitutes wearing things that made themselves clear in that culture that that was their their purpose and desire. As people do, fashion trends trickle down through culture, and ladies in the church, people that were believers and had heard the gospel and professed faith in Christ, were following the trajectory of this culture and these fashion trends without questioning it, without wrestling with it, and without thinking about the implications of their choices. Now, Paul gives the women in the church here in Ephesus a completely different countercultural exhortation. He says, And looking back at the verse in verse 9, adorn yourself with respectable, modest clothes. So as we flesh this out and make application, ladies, hear me closely. The point is not for Matt James, the pastor, to stand up here and give you a list of do wear and don't wear. A list of things that are acceptable and not acceptable in some legalistic sort of way, as churches in history have attempted to do. The point here is a much deeper thing. It's a much deeper heart question. So hear me closely. The heart question is not, should I wear this, or can I wear this, or do I wear this, and don't wear this. The deeper question is, why wear this, right? That's what Paul's getting at. As in, why should I wear this thing as opposed to that thing? Why should I put this thing back on the rack at the department store and pick up this thing? In other words, Christian women in Paul's day and in our day have a different motivation in what they wear, in their fashion, in their clothing than the surrounding culture. Does that make sense? Let's look at the two specific examples he gives us, and we'll flesh this out uh, maybe in some more detail. Here's what we see as we look at the two examples Paul gives us. We see two warnings and then one encouragement. Two warnings and one encouragement. Look at warning number one. Warning number one is don't strive to be recognized for your physical beauty. It's not saying to minimize your physical beauty. Just don't make it your point, your, your motive, your goal. Strive to be recognized for that physical beauty. Paul's saying by giving these examples... Ladies, don't dress in a way that draws other attention towards you, especially men, right? Because big picture, life ain't about you. (laughs) Life ain't about you in this worship gathering that you're distracting among is not about you either. It's about him. It's about our Savior Christ. And he specifically uses the word modesty here, which in the Greek has sexual overtones. That's his use in the, the word modest. In other words, Paul's telling these ladies and ladies today, If men are rubbernecking to see you as you pass by, then you have missed it. You've missed the exhortation about modesty. We don't have to parse this out. I don't have to give you a list of do's and don'ts. But as you consider necklines, hemlines, skin-tight clothing, ask the question, why? Why? That's what Paul's asking us and the Holy Spirit through Paul is causing us to wrestle with. And I want to be careful here. This is not some legalistic dress code. This is a heart issue, a motivation of your heart. Why would you choose this as opposed to that? Listen how Platt, David Platt in his uh, uh, commentary on this describes it. He says, with all due respect to our sisters in Christ, the way that some women dress in the church is at best a distraction from honoring God and at worst a, an attempt to seduce men in the church to sin. Sisters in Christ should not be asking, what makes me look more attractive? That's the wrong motivation. Instead, the question should be, what can I wear that best demonstrates a humble heart devoted to the worship of God? This biblical and God-centered perspective should affect everything about us. A holistic uh, affecting us, even, even our clothes, even our fashion. That's number one. Don't strive to be recognized. Don't make it your intention. Like, hey, look at me and my physical beauty. Warning number two. Don't strive to be recognized for your material wealth. That's the second thing he gets at by mentioning the lavish hairstyles, expensive jewelry, the gold, the pearls, the costly apparel. Paul's saying that those things only highlight a distinction between the wealthy and the poor. And that's not our purpose. It shouldn't be our attitude, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we wear things or our attire assert our uh, social status. Paul's warning them not to wear things that bring attention to them, particularly when they're gathered for worship. In our, listen, in our, our, our sinful flesh and in this fallen world, we have enough things that attempt to divide us as the people of God. Don't add to that list by distinguishing yourself as the wealthy class 
And everyone else is down here somewhere. That's the point he's getting at. And when you do that, you're competing for attention. The problem is the attention that you're competing for and garnering is robbing God of attention. When you're saying, look at me because of whatever the case may be, because of my physical beauty or my my wealth, you're saying, and, and, and maybe not even intentionally so, you're distracting from the attention that God should get because that's why we're here. That's why we've gathered. So those are the two warnings. Now the encouragement. Worship God through a Christ-like demeanor. Don't miss what Paul's saying here. He's not saying, don't adorn yourself in anything. Instead, he's saying, adorn yourself with something very specific. Godliness. Uh, Godliness. Verse 10. What is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. When you're fixing your hair in the morning and you're putting on your clothes, think about that which is more important. Godliness. That's what Matthew 5.16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And again, this goes all the way back to that heart question, right? The why question. Because here's the thing, you can put on good works for the same wrong reason as putting on some uh, scandalous outfit, right? You can put on good works to steal attention from God as a distraction to make yourself look good. And so this is still a heart issue. It's still a matter of the heart. So the question, what I do... And what I wear, may it all be done to shine a big spotlight on God who is worthy of our attention. The only one worth marveling at. All of us. That's a question for all of us. But especially women, because that's the context in which Paul's writing here. May we ask, because of my actions and because of my attire, am I distracting others from God or attracting others to God? You see why this is a tough text, right? We're just walking through the text, and feathers are ruffled, and, and attitudes are like, <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that. And we're just walking through the text. So wrestle with it. Is your knee jerk in this moment a reaction to what you're seeing in the scriptures, or because you've been uh, uh, influenced by culture around you, or by the way you were raised? Men and women, we need to wrestle with this. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to search our heart and our convictions on this matter. Let me also say real quickly, before we move on, I I couldn't get away from this topic and and specifically this text without this thought. That there's a sentiment in our culture, and I hear it more and more and feel it more and more in our culture, and we should reject it fully. And it's this idea that a man's sexual sin, a male sexual sin, um, whether it be an inappropriate comment or touch or full-out rape, is excused or if not excused, at least explained as a consequence of a woman's attire or dress or the way she conducted herself, this idea that she was asking for it by the way she dressed. Without mincing words, let me just say to you, church, God forbid that we as the people of God would think like that or or hear that lie from hell and think it has any truth in it. You, brother, you, man, you, young boy, are culpable for your sin. And whatever sinful choice she may have made does not make your choice right or justified. You are, 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 are responsible for your thoughts and actions. And so that, that doesn't get to be cast on someone because of their sinful choices. And so men, if you've thought that way, repent and confess that sin to God. And the other flip side of that, the opposite side of that coin is, ladies, if you have done this, if you've dressed in a way to draw attention to yourself, Repent. And confess that sin to God. So, we've seen a convicting charge to the men of the church, verse 8. We've seen a careful corrective to the women of the church, verses 9 and 10. And all of this is boiling down to what we see in verses 11 through 15, which is a clear explanation of the distinct roles of men and women in the church. So, read with me verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Paul continues here, addressing the church in Ephesus, likely because specific things in Ephesus were out of order, and in particular with the women of the church. And we know this, like we can see this from the rest of 1 Timothy, because in chapter 4, we'll see that teachers, false teachers, were in Ephesus, and they were encouraging men and women not to marry, undercutting the beauty of of biblical marriage. And then you get to chapter 5, and you see that younger women uh, were not getting married, but instead were spending their time gossiping in the church. And then you get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and you find out there's a group of women that are giving false testimony and living according to worldly passions in 2 Timothy 3. 
And so whatever else may have been going on in Ephesus, one thing was certain, there were some women there that were undercutting godly doctrine, uh, godly behavior, and godly leadership in the church. We have to remember, though, God's not just picking on the ladies here. Like, that's our temptation when we get to this part of chapter 2. He's like, man, he's got a lot to say about the ladies. Don't forget that he just spent all of chapter 1 rebuking some dudes who were false teachers in the church, right? And so... All that to say that Paul's addressing a variety of issues in this letter, and this is what he's, hit, he's hitting right now because it's an issue in Ephesus, and we would be foolish to think it's not an issue in our day. Now, before jumping in to these particular verses, I don't want to pretend that these five verses are easy, right? Uh, th- these verses are some of the most controversial verses of the New Testament. You'll find a variety of interpretations and opinions about them, but before we jump into them, I want to set and lay some, some groundwork for us. Uh, in a couple ways. I want to first uh, remind you of two principles that we must hold to when we study the Bible. These are just generally speaking principles that we have in our toolbox when we come to the study of Scripture or we misunderstand, right? So here's the, the two principles. First is the harmony of Scripture. And what I mean by that is that we understand a particular Scripture in light of all of Scripture, right? So if something seems confusing, we go to the rest of the Bible because we know God doesn't contradict himself. And so if something seems confusing, we look at the rest of the Bible for what God has also said on that issue that may clarify it. It's the principle of harmony in the scriptures. The second principle that we have to remember is the historical nature of the scriptures. And we've mentioned this a couple times already this morning. It means that we understand the scriptures were revealed by God. They're inspired by him at specific historical times and settings. And so, when we get to a text like this, we have to remember those things because those two principles, the harmony of Scripture and the history of Scripture, calls us to ask one major question. Here's the question. We should ask this when we get to all texts, but especially when we get to hard texts, debated texts, texts that are confusing. What part of the, here's the question, what part of the text is cultural and changes with time, and what part of the text is central, meaning it never changes, right? The principle that is unchanging, regardless of how culture may change. Let me give you an illustration or an example. This may help. Uh, John Stott and David Platt both offered a similar example in their commentary, and I thought it was helpful. So take Paul's statement back in verse 9 about braids, right? Hair braids. If we were ministering to a tribe in Africa, right, where the Christian women... Godly women had uh, preserved the traditional African hairstyles with intricate braids and designs. What would we say to them? Would we say that this is sinful, that their, that their practice of doing that is sinful? Well, in other words, was Paul saying that all braids, always and for all cultures, is inherently sinful? Or, to contrast, is he saying that elaborate braids in Ephesus violated modesty and decency and good sense because it represented a certain thing there? If so, so think about this, so if the women in the African tribes were dressing with these braids to elicit envy or to evoke sexual lust from men, then we would look at it and say, that's a moral issue. You're doing it for the same reasons. That's a sinful thing. If, on the other hand, the intricate braids are not that, they're not a sign of wealth, nor are they a sign or an attempt to seduce, then the answer would be no. We're not dealing with sinful behavior. And in fact, in African culture, these elaborate hairstyles do not express the same meaning that they did in Ephesus. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. In African culture, the the, the hair braids, the intricate hair braids are conservative. They're modest and traditional values being expressed in that uh, hairstyle. And so we look at it and say, that's why context matters. That's why when we come to the scriptures, we have to wrestle with these questions. And so the example there, as we just walk through with the African tribe, the prohibition, no braids, is cultural. It changes as the culture changes. The central part, the part that's unchanging, is that God has called us not to be attention stealers, not to be people that would put ourselves on display and conduct or distract for ourselves the attention that only God deserves, distract people from the worship of Him. That's what's unchanging. Let me warn you here, church, that while this is faithful, Uh, Biblical hermeneutics is what we call this. This is a faithful way to study and interpret the scriptures. Let me give you a warning here that there are liberals that will take this principle and apply it to clear prohibitions in scripture, right? So they will say that this same thing applies to homosexuality. And the reasoning is because we didn't have the science that we have now, the Bible's prohibition of homosexuality is outdated. It needs to be discarded, just like the admonition with braids, right? And here's where I point you back to that first principle. 
right, that we just talked to, the harmony of Scripture. This is where I point you back to that principle and say we understand a particular Scripture in light of all of Scripture. And so we must be extremely careful not to accommodate to culture and disregard the truth of the Bible when the Bible addresses something over and over and over again, as it does biblical marriage and homosexuality. Does that make sense? Homosexuality, as well as a, 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 a litany of other sexual sins, are addressed from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, throughout the Scriptures, consistently. So the harmony of Scripture would teach us that's central. That's foundational. That's absolutely sin across all of cultures because God has repeatedly emphasized it throughout all of his word. Does that make sense? Now <laughs> that we've thought through how to understand the Bible, generally speaking, and difficult texts, I want to give you a couple foundational truths, right? That when we look at the harmony of Scripture, all of Scripture, a couple truths that come out that are going to be important for this text. So here they are. Number one, God created men and women with equal dignity, right? That means that man and woman are equally significant and valuable before God. Now, that may sound absurd to some of you, and the fact that we even have to say it, it seems absurd that we would even have to say it, but in the day and age we live in, we have to say it. And as a result, to demean men or women, because of being man or woman, is a sin against God who designed them equally. That's principle number one. We see that throughout all of Scripture. Second, second principle that we need to remember as we approach this text is that God created men and women with complementary roles. God created in his design men and women to have different and distinct roles respected to their gender. Now, these roles complement one another. That's why we say they're complementary. They go together. They fit. They're meant to function together. And all of that is by God's design. These roles... Men and women gender roles are seen particularly in the home and in the church. The home roles are given to us in places like uh, home roles. Think about food, huh? Uh, the home, the roles that we would have in the home are given to us in places like Ephesians five. Uh, the church roles, the roles that we would see for men and women in the church, are given to us in places like First Timothy two and First Timothy three that we'll see next week. These are not isolated, though. What they really do is they go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 through 3, where in creation, God made man and woman with these different, distinct, beautifully complementary roles. Now, within those two principles for how to understand God's, uh, God's uh, scriptures, so, so the harmony of scripture and the historical nature of scripture, and with these two foundational truths in place about manhood and womanhood, that men are equal but have complementary roles, distinct roles, let's look at the, the text that we just read. Let me give you two prohibitions in this text that we can't get around. First Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 12. Both of them are in this one verse, in verse 12. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach one or to exercise authority over a man. So let's parse these out and see what they mean. One, a woman is not permitted to teach. What in the world does that mean? Here's the problem. It can't mean... That women are, prohib- are prohibited to teach in every way, in every capacity, or that they're prohibited to teach at all times, right? Because in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, Paul's encouraging women to teach, specifically in the context of, of women teaching older women, Titus 2, 3. And so, uh, to understand what Paul's getting at, it's helpful for us to connect the prohibitions, the two things that he says he's not permitting to happen, with what they have in common. Think about this, what do teaching and exercising authority, specifically over a man, have in common. Well, if you're paying attention or if you've read ahead in the book of 1 Timothy, we'll get there next week in chapter 3. These are the qualifications for an elder that he should be able to teach. It's the distinction between an elder and a deacon in 1 Timothy 3. Which, by the way, <laughs> news alert, that's what, that's what shows us that Paul here is not just picking on the ladies, that he's just a woman hater, right? Because you get to chapter 3 and he's going to say, hey, there's some dudes that don't need to be teaching either, right? That's the qualification for an elder. And so, to be an elder, you must be able to teach. Well, why is that, Paul? Why is that the case? Because in teaching God's word, you're exercising authority within God's church. How do you do that? Well, it's not because Matt James has any inerrant authority. It's not because I am some person who's above you and has some authority. It's because I'm teaching God's word to you. That's our authority. That's our only authority. His word, what he has spoken, is our authority. That's the authority your elders have. And so this prohibition here for women is not that they not teach. It's not that they, it's that they would not teach with the authority of an elder. That, 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 God, that God-given authority within the body of Christ. Instead, verse 11, 
she should listen willingly to biblical instruction of her elders. Why? Because that's her authority, just like it's his authority, and it's just like it's the elder's authority. So when the text says that she should listen with silence and full submission, that doesn't mean we need to have a person at the door, and when ladies enter the building, they have to go mute, right? Or they're in violation of this command. We know that because, again, all of Scripture, think about the harmony of Scripture. At other times and other points of the New Testament, we see women praying in the gathered body. We see them giving testimony when Christians are gathered. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is simply saying that women should listen attentively with a teachable spirit because the God-ordained elders in the church are teaching the word of God that has authority for you, just like it has authority for every person in the body of Christ. Additionally, I don't want you to hear me say or or the takeaway be, well, this sermon was just about all the things that women can't do. At Poplar Spring, we want to empower women and and young girls and teenagers to serve Christ with their God-given gifts in all the ways that they've been gifted. This is why God gave women and gives women the abilities to teach in various settings of the church under the authority of her elders, right? I'll give you some examples. Timothy, the one that this letter is written to, received instruction from his mother and his grandma. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Aquila and his wife Priscilla, both of them took Apollos aside and, and I'm quoting, explained the way of God to him more accurately. Acts 18. Women and men are both called to make disciples of all people, which includes teaching them to observe the commands of Christ. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Paul commanded the whole church, men and women, to be teaching and admonishing one another as the word of Christ dwells richly in you. Colossians 3, 16. And it was already mentioned, 1 Corinthians 11, women prayed and gave testimony in public worship with proper humility and submission. So in summary, church, here's what I'm saying, and this is the takeaway from this in application today in our our body. Women who are gifted to teach should absolutely use their God-given gifts to build up the body of Christ, but not teaching over men in the role of an elder, always under the authority of her elders. And so in this prohibition, we see... If we see this prohibition, right, if we can understand this prohibition, it makes the second one a whole lot easier. If a woman shouldn't teach with the authority of an elder over a man, then she certainly shouldn't be an elder and exercise authority as an elder over a man. That's the second part of verse 12. I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. So that, that second prohibition is she's not permitted to lead as an elder, pastor, overseer in the church. I'm talking about incredibly countercultural. That's countercultural even within most denominations today. That's not to say a woman can never be in any type of leadership. Based on the rest of the New Testament and the harmony of Scripture, women should serve in a variety of ways, in various ways in the life of the church, under the authority of elder leadership. In other words, as they submit to elders, ladies are, are freed and should feel the liberty to serve all throughout the life of the church, right? Think about the ways they do so in the New Testament as they thrive in their ministries, teaching and serving and equipping and spreading the gospel as, as, as evangelists. I mean, the, the point is that women have been gifted and they should be maximizing their gifts within the body of Christ in the local church. Now, if you're struggling with this, you're saying, man, I don't, I don't like this. Why don't we have to follow this? Can it, can it be a cultural thing that changes with time? Well, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that that would be our question. He knew that we would be wrestling with this. And even more than, 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 this is be, than this is hard to hear, he knew we would have an even harder time submitting to it. So That's where he takes us in the next three verses. He gives us the theological grounds behind it. Look at verses 13 and 14, and we'll hit this quickly. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the the first thing, what Paul's doing here is he's laying the theological foundation for what he just said. He's saying, this is what the, 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 the roles are for men and women in the church, and here's how you know that they're true. And he goes back to the garden. He said, this is God's design. That's the first theological foundation that he lays. He gives, God gives in his design, in creation, authority, headship to man. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, headship, then Eve. And this is what Paul is saying, and this is how he's saying that this is not just cultural changing, this is central. This is how God designed it. This was God's intention. This was in the heart and mind of God from creation, going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. And then Paul gives us the second theological foundation, the second way in which we know this to be true, and he points to Satan's perversion of God's design. So not only did God design it this way, this was the very first thing that Satan tried to pervert, right? And in that, we see that man runs from authority, in, 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 the, in the fall, and woman runs to authority. This is what Paul's saying. And, and to be clear, let me make this clear. Paul is not saying 
that women shouldn't lead in the church because she's gullible or tricked more easily. I think some have interpreted this wrongly to say, well, see, women are gullible. That's why he went back to Eve, and that's why this is a problem. If women were pastors, they'd be tricked all the time. No, that's not what he's saying. He's going back to a much deeper root problem, namely that Satan, in the very beginning, subverted God's design by going to Eve in the first place. Right? Instead of going to Adam, the head that God had created, Satan, because he's cunning and he's evil and he's sly, he undercut God's design and Adam's headship, Adam's responsibility to lead his home by going to Eve. That's what Paul's bringing our attention to. And what did Adam do? Well, he sat back and did nothing. He didn't own it. He didn't take responsibility for it. He didn't, he didn't uh, take the blame on himself as the head, as the leader of his home. He, he blamed it all on Eve. Yeah, it was her fault. You gave me the woman and she did it. You see what's happening there. He didn't take responsibility as head. He pushed it off on his wife. So in short, the reason Paul goes back to the garden with us here is because sin entered the world when man ran from his responsibility and woman tried to seize that responsibility. And all of this, Paul is saying, God's design for qualified men to lead as pastors, as elders in the church is good. It was God's design from the beginning that God's design for men, for husbands to lead in their home is good. That was the way God created it. Adam is head. He was created first. And then Eve is helper from his side. That's good. And just as it's good for for men and husbands to lead in in the home and in the church, that's that's a God-ordained thing. What's bad is that it was perverted. It was perverted by Satan in the garden. It was perverted by the Ephesians that were dressing inappropriately, trying to steal attention for themselves. And it's increasingly perverted in our world today. Sadly, even within many churches and denominations today. That's why Paul takes us back all the way to the garden. He's grounding this for us, not just in a a passing comment where he would seem sexist. He's founding and he's grounding this in the creative design of God. And that's why this, this thing is all coming under the harmony of all of Scripture, not just this strange comment that Paul makes about the church of Ephesus. So, if all of that was not tough enough, and if you're not ready to get up and run out yet, Verse 15 is probably the most confusing verse of all of them, <laughs> at least that we've read this morning. So let's look at it, and quickly, I know we're already past what we would normally go, but this is, there's too much here to just, to just glance over. So verse 15 says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What in the world does that mean? I mean, you could really get some crazy cult doctrine if you took this one verse and begin teaching that women are saved by birthing babies. So let me try to explain as best and as quickly as I can two possible meanings for what this could mean, this verse could mean, and then two absolutely true things, two things that we know with certainty are true from this verse. So one, one possible understanding here uh, is that this verse could be talking about salvation through the offspring of Eve, right? He just took us back to the garden, That was intentional in Paul's logic and reasoning. So what some commentators will say is that this verse is a deliberate reference uh, back to the fact that even though Eve ate the fruit first and sin entered the world through her, the promise remained that a Savior would also enter through her. That's Genesis 3.15, the promise of a seed that would crush the head of the serpent, right? Listen how John Stott describes this, this line of reasoning, and it makes a lot of sense the way he says this. He says, earlier in the chapter, chapter 2, the one mediator between God and men had been identified as the man Christ Jesus, who of course became a human being by being born of a woman. Further, Paul references the fall and Eve's sin in this very chapter. The serpent had deceived her. Her posterity would defeat him. So then, even if certain roles in the church are not open to women, and even if they are tempted to resent that fact, They and we must never forget what we all owe to a woman. (laughs) If Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, there would be no salvation for anybody. No greater honor has ever been given to a woman than than the calling of Mary to be the mother of the Savior of the world. Incredible. Let me give you option number two. Option number two for how to understand this verse is that this verse could be talking about the significance of women in nurturing children. Right? This line of reasoning goes, in light of all that was going wrong in Ephesus, in light of all the ways that women's roles in the home and church were being distorted in Ephesus, in light of the fact that marriage and, and, and raising children were being undercut by these false teachers in Ephesus that we'll see later on in our study, 
In light of all of that, Paul's simply emphasizing the one facet that without question only women can do, bear children, right? Like no matter how far away a culture gets and no matter how much a culture may try to minimize the difference between male and female, this one distinction still remains true. There are no brothers giving birth, right? And so these two most plausible interpretations of verse 15, I think, I think both of them make sense. I think you could see it either way. Uh, despite it being a, a slightly confusing verse, I think there's, there's takeaway there. But here's what we absolutely know to be true. There's the takeaway, and we're closing. Two takeaways that we absolutely, from verse 15, know to be true. Women are sanctified as they worship God with the distinct role that he has given them. There is meaning. Listen to me carefully. I know we've said a lot of things that you may be uncomfortable with. There is meaning and significance and value in a woman's gender. And so sisters in Christ are to be working out their salvation, right? Not just as generic persons, but as women of God with inherent beauty and godliness and value and and distinct gifts and opportunities and ways to serve Christ and his church, right? And so that's what we we would take away from this. Sisters in Christ are meant to thrive as wives, mothers, friends, sisters, aunts, grandmas, women of God. So woman of God, grow in Christ and serve him with the gifts he's given you. And don't ever be ashamed or embarrassed to do so. He gave you those gifts. Honor him with them. Second thing we absolutely know to be true, and we're wrapping up. Regardless of how this verse may be interpreted and what other interpretations you may hear, when we look at all of Scripture and the harmony of all of Scripture, we know for certain women are not saved through the birth of their child, but through the death of Mary's child. That's the gospel truth that we see even in verse 15. And to be overly clear, women and men only have one hope of salvation, and that's in the death of Mary's child, King Jesus. Sin distorted the world. The world that we live in has been marred by the effects of sin. And each one of us in this room, whether it's other sins or these that we've mentioned this morning, we have chosen to rebel against a holy God. But, and this is the greatest but, this is the greatest interjection that we could ever make to a statement like, we have all sinned against the holy God, but Christ has come. And he gave his life. He was born of a woman. He was raised and he was perfectly righteous and holy. And he gave his life on a cross. And in doing so, he has conquered death. He's conquered sin. And he makes a way of salvation for all who will come to him. So would you submit to Christ today? That's your only hope in life and death is the king, the king that died in your place. And in him, when we've been born in him, we can all thrive in him in the roles that he has given us in his creative uh, uh, purposes in creation. So would you submit to him today? Let's pray together.